Bienvenidos and welcome back to episode 5 and the finale for the 5th season of the Heart Podcast. This is Dr. Milagros Castillo Montoya and this season we focus on better understanding the central pillars of the truth, racial healing and transformation framework being advanced by the American Association of Colleges and Universities and the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. We began this season with Dr. Pascarella, the president of the American Association of Colleges and Universities, and Dr. Tuit, vice president and chief diversity officer of the University of Connecticut. We focused that initial conversation in understanding broadly what this initiative is about and how it might be useful in terms of the work happening at the University of Connecticut. We then had three episodes highlighting each of the three central areas of the framework. Truth, which is also connected to the idea of narrative change, racial healing, and transformation. To close us out this season, we return to the American Association of Colleges and Universities for insight, particularly from Dr. Tia McNair, who is the executive director of this initiative, and Dr. Jeffrey Hines, who is the inaugural CDO for UConn Health. We can't wait for you to join us in this conversation as we hear from both of them about the value of reclaiming the narrative in order to tell a more complete and truthful story and the importance of centering healing and transformation in relationships. Thank you for joining us this season. We look forward to kicking off a new season this fall where we will engage more deeply with three focal areas in the truth, racial healing and transformation framework. These three focal areas are separation, law, and the economy. So please join us again come this fall. I now turn it over to Truth to introduce Dr. Tia McNair, and then Omar to introduce Dr. Jeffrey Hines. Thank you, Milagros. Dr. Tia Brown McNair is the Vice President in the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Student Success, and Executive Director for the Truth Racial Healing and Transformation Campus Centers at the American Association of Colleges and Universities in Washington, DC. She oversees both funded projects and continuing programs on equity, inclusive excellence, high impact practices, and student success. Additionally, Dr. Brown McNair has played an instrumental role in developing a campus climate toolkit for truth racial healing and transformation campus centers. She is the lead author of two books, From Equity Talk to Equity Walk, Expanding Practitioner Knowledge for Racial Justice in Higher Education, and Becoming a Student Ready College, A New Culture of Leadership for Student Success. Thank you so much, Truth. Also joining us for the episode is Dr. Jeffrey Hines, who is UConn Health's inaugural Chief Diversity Officer. His professional journey has involved the development of strategies and the implementation of programs with health systems, educational institutions, and nonprofit organizations locally and nationally to meet their diversity, equity, and inclusion goals. Dr. Hines earned a Bachelor of Science from Brown University in 1983 and an MD from the Warren Alpert Medical School in 1986. He began his career in the U.S. Army Medical Corps as a battalion surgeon and after his deployment, he held academic teaching positions at Texas A&M, College of Medicine, Georgetown University School of Medicine, in addition to other institutions. Dr. Hines is actively involved in the community in which he serves on various boards and also participates in medical missions to international locations, which include Jamaica and the Philippines. 
We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Pawgusset, Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples, who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Again, welcome everyone to the conversation. We want to revisit two big ideas from our first podcast episode of the season with Dr. Tuit and Dr. Pascarella. Dr. Pascarella pointed out that racial justice work is not just for those who have diversity, equity, and inclusion responsibilities in their job duties, but for all community members. As one who oversees the implementation of multiple truth, racial healing, and transformation centers, Tia, I'm wondering if you could speak to the way in which leaders of these centers have advanced the idea and practice that racial equity is the responsibility for all, not just for a select few. Thank you so much, Malagas, for inviting me to be here and to be part of this conversation and to hold space with you and Jeff during our time together. That is such a great viewpoint for us to think about how expansive the TRHT work is within our communities. So we are very intentional at AECNU, even when campuses come together with stating an interest about joining the TRHT effort, that this is not just about one area of the institution doing this work. This requires campus leaders, administrators, faculty, student affairs educators, students, community partners, all across the board to really think about their role and responsibilities for advancing truth-telling, racial healing and relationship building that leads towards transformation. So our work from the very beginning with our institutions is how can this work really reach as much of the institution as possible and within scale and align with the institutional strategic priorities and mission and vision for DEI. So if we start with that, so imagine we have many institutions and they start with that framework that this is expansive work. Then we ask them, and so many of them are doing such a great job, whether they're talking about curricular change, whether they're talking about community engagement with TRHT, whether they're talking about uh, faculty fellows and how they're actually decolonizing the curriculum at their institution. All of these pieces are coming together. And you can see just by what I just described that it can't be done alone. So the institutions are really thinking in ways that are expansive and intentional about this work in alignment to, to achieve with the TRHD goals, but also with the institutional strategic priorities and their vision for what student success and teaching and learning looks like. I just want to add on that amazing comment. And again, Milagros, thank you for the invitation to be in communication on this podcast and for Tia to, to be able to share a stage with you and some thoughts. When I think of how University of Connecticut Health came involved and overall in UConn, it was that sense of my two P's, proximity and participatory. And who are those partners that we can bring to the table to do the work, not only on campus, but to the greater community at large, because we are members of a vibrant community here in the stores area, here in the greater Hartford area. And it's important that we include our community partners that we are proximate with and we are participatory with to do this work. Because this work can't be viewed in a vacuum. It can't be viewed from an island perspective. So bringing all of those 
external and internal partners and stakeholders to the table to do this work to not only affect the university community, but affect the community at large is critically important if we're going to move the needle into space. Jeff, you're exactly right. No two institutions, the way they do it and they approach it are the same. That is the reality. They take the TRC framework, just like you described, Jeff, from a public health perspective, how it's being implemented within your area. No two action plans are the same. They're based on the institutional priorities. So you have campuses like Middlesex, for example, that Middlesex Community College, where they're doing their TRHT and they're thinking about the alignment with their statewide call for addressing racial equity. In Massachusetts, they're thinking about their work on Reggie, which is um, racial equity and justice Institute that was started as a statewide effort in Massachusetts. And they're looking at how does this work align with their call to really as an institution to look at everything through an equity lens, which was something that was, I don't know, prescribed from the state but also something that was deeply embraced by the institution. So they're looking at all these pieces and they're thinking about student success and belonging and what does that mean from those perspectives. They're thinking about how are students engaged and faculty looking at this particular work from achieving their working on their achieving the dream goals, we're working on their strategic planning, working on what the state is calling them to do. All of these pieces require leadership, faculty, student affairs, students, all of them looking at these pieces in order to create an environment for belonging. And that's just one example of this. So Malago's how we talk about the responsibility and the shared across institutions, so huge. And many of our institutions, when they're doing their work, for example, on narrative change, they are holding focus groups and interviews and racial healing circles with multiple stakeholders across the campus and within the community. And it's not just prescribed to one area. This is so wonderful. Thank you both. And just highlighting a couple of themes that stood out from each of your responses. T, I love how you you mentioned, first of all, just giving us the breadth and depth of the TRHT framework and its impact that it has and can continue to have across our nation and across our institutions, particularly something that you mentioned about the TRHT framework, not just impacting one area of the institution. I think the both of you spoke to different departments, you know, beyond the walls of academia and even like community partners, right? Like surrounding area, which leads me to what you mentioned, Jeff, the proximity and the participation that's involved in this work and is so crucial because, you know, all these theories and frameworks, they can't exist in a vacuum chamber, right? We need to see them in action. We need to see that participation. And also it makes me think of how racial injustice it, it can be experienced in so many ways and in so many capacities by different individuals as well and so uh jeff i would like to specifically ask you this question and pulling from our conversation that we had in our first episode where frank spoke to how racial oppression should be taken up as a public health issue and as frank serves as our chief diversity officer at UConn stores and Jeff, you being the, the recently appointed chief diversity officer for UConn Health, could you share any thoughts that you may have on the framing and the approach of racial injustice as a public health concern? Wow, Omar, thank you for that question. You know, certainly, you know, I do consider myself a student of history, not necessarily a historian, but I think it's important to put that in context with systemic racism and how we define it in medicine and systemic racism 
certainly drives implicit biases and microaggressions. It drives stereotypes and prejudices that exist in the space of medicine. And regrettably, those microaggressions, those implicit biases affect health inequities and health inequities are the drivers of health disparities. So clearly we can see that through line and that thread from systemic racism to health disparities that exist. And some of those disparities will affect the learners, for instance, that come to a particular institution because there is importantly a trauma-informed lens that we may need to look at those learners. You know, we talk a lot these days about social determinants of health, which include housing, food, include education, the social context of race, ethnicity, gender identity, and all of those clearly affect health disparities that we see. The other thing that I'll mention is that regrettably, many of us became awakened to the idea of health disparities from the COVID pandemic. Disparities existed prior to COVID, I think because a lot of people were non-essential workers and at home and had time to listen and see things that they didn't hear and see before, they finally became aware of the gravity of health disparities. You know, for instance, why at first were black and brown people more likely to get infected, less likely to get tested, more likely to be hospitalized, and more likely to, to die of disease? So it was exciting to come to a state like Connecticut where the governor announced that Racism is a public health threat. And then quickly behind that for the University of Connecticut under our prior president, Dr. Aguinobi, to announce that racism is a public health threat. Once you do that, you're able to leverage a lot of resources within the institution and outside of the institution. So the people at UConn Health got on board from a research perspective. What could we do to investigate this? We're very proud to have the Health Disparities Institute, which does meaningful scholarly research in this space. But I want to highlight one other partner that we're beginning to become involved in in this. And it's one of those external partners. And to do this work, people in government have to be involved, people in policy have to be involved, but the philanthropic community needs to be involved as well. And it's exciting when you look at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving, the Community Foundation for the Greater Hartford Area, their strategic pillar for the year is equity and racial justice. And so we're able to partner with them as we roll out some of the strategies within the institution and with some of those proximate community partners that want to do this participatory work. So it's very exciting that there is some momentum. Omar, it takes a while to shepherd that momentum because oftentimes a little bit of fatigue will set in. So you need to keep that ball rolling. But thank you for that question. Jeff, I, I really appreciate how you uplift that the pandemic really had an invaluable lens from which to see disparities in health and in lived experiences 
that are pretty persistent and have been persistent for generations, but more difficult potentially to to see or even have it spotlighted in the media the way it was, but that the pandemic really served as a watershed moment to have a national conversation around health disparities and the intersection with race and open conversations that really weren't happening in a broad scale way across the country. You also raised the value of leveraging this momentum for creating and establishing new community partners for doing this work, because you're definitely right. It, this, this is not easy work. And like Tia, you mentioned, it has to come from various angles. It has to come from different levels of the institution, inside the institution and outside of the institution. And so for transformative change to happen, it really needs to be more systematic. So I, I appreciate you raising those points. You know, taking into account the responses that you both have shared so far about racial justice and the responsibility for all to address uh, systemic racism, particularly as a public health concern, we want to talk through your insights on how we can address what's happening in the national level in terms of education, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We are seeing that there's extreme resistance to initiatives and curriculum changes that involve the histories and experiences of historically marginalized groups. And we're witnessing efforts to ban books, to limit what the curriculum can do, to threaten the position of faculty who are committed to doing diversity, equity, inclusion work, or to teach on critical issues in the classroom. And we're curious about how might this be an opportunity where the truth, racial healing and transformation framework can actually be a tool for continuing to shape and advance equity in education, even within this national climate. I wonder if you both can speak to that or Tia, if you could get us started in the conversation. Sure, thank you for that question. Um, it's complex, so let's start there. We know that it's complex and there are a lot of emotions involved in these discussions and a lot of fear and anxiety. But let's start with the just the fundamental piece of truth, racial healing, transformation and the language that we use to describe it. So first is truth telling. We have to know our histories. We have to know who we are, what, what, ha what has been experienced, how that has influenced the current day situations that we're in right now. So that part is fundamental, understanding who we are, what has happened, how we're going to move forward. So truth-telling and understanding our narratives and our lived experiences are at the core of that. So we're always in our work with TRHT going to be supportive of that knowledge sharing, that, that understanding of history. So that is fundamental to, to, to the work of TRHT. But look at the language that we use to describe TRHT. Truth-telling, narrative change, racial healing, relationship building, examining how we are separated, how our laws, how our economic decisions, our economies perpetuate a false belief in a hierarchy of human value. We use the terminology of expansive, interconnectedness, common humanity within this work. Our work on TRHT is not about perpetuating divisions. Our work in, in TRHT is not about replacing hierarchies as has been mis misunderstood in so many different contexts within the challenges on diversity and equity and inclusion and justice and belonging work at many institutions and within many systems. 
this work is about us understanding who we are, understanding that our experiences have been different, but deep listening and being empathetic and then really thinking about how we come together as a community to heal so that we can lead the transformation that we seek. We're not going to get anywhere if we're combative. It's not going to move anywhere. Yes, we, and in some instances that has happened and then we have to learn from that and then figure out how do we build that foundation for the next level. So that's why healing is central within the TRHT effort and work. I was talking to a group of national community leaders at a recent convening of the community partners for TRHT here in Washington, D.C. And this question was raised and they said, what is it that you would recommend with with how it relates to education? And I said, remember that it's localized. We have to reclaim the definitions. We have to reclaim the narrative and stop the misunderstanding and the misuse of the terminology that is being utilized in a way to divide us and not think about the importance of what are our shared goals and purpose. We all want equity within equality, within opportunity for the people who are part of our community, for us as well. We also want students to have the opportunities to succeed, but we also know that everyone comes from different circumstances and different backgrounds and are coming to us with varied levels of preparedness at no fault of their own. And it is our responsibility as educators, as people within this community to figure out what is working and what is not working. How do we support their success? And that is something that I've heard from both conservative and liberal is that people that are, that are part of this environment, that everybody wants our students to have the opportunity to succeed. That's what we talk about within our work on TRHT. What has caused us to not be able to achieve that equality of opportunity? That what perpetuates those inequities? How do we address them in a way so that we can understand in a deeper way this false belief in a hierarchy of human value that continues to perpetuate the varied experiences from our, from our communities within these systems? So that's what we talk about in our work at TRHT. And I, I just wish that we would reclaim the language and not let it be so combative because it's not, our work is not combative. It is about truth-telling that leads to transformation. Tia, thank you so much. Um, to add on to that, I agree 100% with the importance of reclaiming the narrative because it has been in many instances, it's been weaponized and politicized and hijacked. And it's so important in groups of people to tell the history that is a history of truth. One of the things Milagros specifically about your question is that the framework allows for some on-ramps for an individual or for an organization to do this work. And if you look at say the education system, one of the on-ramps is through knowledge of law. And I think one of the things that we need to realize is the importance as we understand the history and the narrative is the importance of informing, you know, our groups that are involved in the importance of how we can get involved at a local level in policy, for instance. So much of what's going on in dismantling K through 12 education and 
institutions of higher ed, you know, starts at local school boards. So how can we inform a group of people about that particular narrative and to empower them to, to, to get involved, uh, to get informed? I'll make a metaphor going back to racism as a public health threat. We, we refer not only to the social determinants of health, but we refer to what's called the political determinants of health. And the political determinants of health are policy, government, and voting. And so one of the things we can do in this narrative as we tell the truth is to inform people of the importance of how change can be affected by getting involved in affecting policy, being involved in government, and actually voting. So that narrative change piece is critical to help people find those on ramps to do the work with education. Um, economy and education are linked together. What are the ways that we can transform the space by transforming opportunity for people who have been under resourced or ignored? So those are just a few examples, I think specifically of how the narrative change using those lanes of opportunity through the framework can help us address this dismantling in K-12 and institutions of higher education that's going on right now. Thank you all for that explanation. And what stood out to me that was really powerful is this idea of reclaiming the narrative, reclaiming our language. And that's important because behind language are our paradigms, our epistemologies, right? So, Atia, you pointed out like th how the framework looks at interconnectedness, our humanity, these false ideas around a hierarchy of value, right? And when we begin to really interrogate the language, right, the language is going to guide us in terms of doing this work. And that's the reason why narrative change is so important. And also, Jeff, you pointed out the political determinants of health, which I think are are really profound. Like, how do we get empowered to do this work at the local level? So right now, these issues feel so big. We're watching them on TV, CRT being banned all throughout the nation. But what can we do? How can we get involved in our local school boards? And we're actually at a conference right now where we're talking about this relationship between think globally, but act locally. So I really wanna thank you all for pointing that out, the power of language, because behind our language is really the, the impetus in terms of what is driving us forward. And this brings me to our last question, which I am just so excited to talk to you all about because we talked about these really big macro topics, but now we can really sort of step into you all's values in terms of how you do this work. So you all are doing amazing institutional level and multi-institutional work through your leadership. But we would like to end this episode with a personal and individual level question. So which of the TRHT pillars resonates with you personally? And if you could choose one as your North Star for your day-to-day -day work, what would that be and why? And I'm gonna ask Tia to, to kick us off if that's okay. Oh, truth. That was 
that's that's a complicated question because it depends on the circumstance. But can I go back to something that you said about the language? I just want to reiterate this, especially if there are a lot of higher education or education communities listening to this podcast. We have to not intellectualize this works to the point where we can't reach our communities when we're talking about reclaiming the narrative and reclaiming the language. We are very, we do this very well within higher education. We intellectualize DEI work all the time. And we talk in our jargon and we talk in our perspective without being able to talk in plain language about what it is that we do on a day-to-day basis within this work. And I'm not saying that that means we have to that there's a hierarchy in knowledge here or anything like that, but I'm just saying we should be able to explain what it is that we do without writing an academic paper, without writing a statement that you would have to go out and research the, <laughs> the terminology in order to get, get to the point. So I, I think that we have to do better on our own messaging of what, when we're talking about reclaiming the narrative, because if we're talking about localized, how would you share this message in a localized way on on how and what it is that we're reclaiming there? So I just want to put that out there uh, because I just want to be honest with you. Nobody reads our statements except for us. So I just want to make sure that everyone gets that. We, we read our own statements in higher education. <laughs> so just to put that out there. So now back to the, your, your question. The... The question is is difficult because it depends on the piece, but I, I I did think about this. And for me, it is relationships because of the centering of people, the relationship building piece. People are so central into the work of TRHT and to the work that we're doing. And the importance of being able to share space, to share community, to engage in deep listening and to be empathetic with one another and to to build those relationships that will lead to change. When I think about the divides that are currently within our communities, I think that if we center the, the part of our relationships and our connectedness to one another, I think that is that's a key part of the work for me. Because without that, I can't see and I can't imagine how we're going to achieve the goals of TRHT. Thank you, Truth, for that. And and it is challenging. And I'll I'll answer it in two ways. (laughs) I digress. It's stories are important and the type of stories that you tell. You know, there are stories that basically will reiterate the narrative, the common dominant narrative that's out there. And then there are those uplifting stories that will change their narrative that fight the hierarchy that, that exists. So I think the stories are important, but the pillar that's most important to me is the economic pillar. I am confident that wealth and income inequality that exists is a big driver of so many of the disparities that we see, again, especially in healthcare. Because clearly, lack of opportunity in housing, housing insecurity, food insecurity, 
green space insecurity, financial toxicity, all of those are significant drivers to poor outcomes that we see in historically marginalized communities. So the storytelling personally is so critical to me, but change in the dynamic economically is for me the, the way to move the needle. What wonderful responses you two. Thank you so, so, so much for your time and your perspective. And really, I feel like you, you encapsulated the, the true expansiveness of the TRHD framework, which couldn't come at a better time, given that UConn is very fresh as being designated as a TRHT institution, and there's still a lot more work to be done, but it's comforting to know that we have experts like the both of you in our, in our corner and that there's really amazing work taking place across the country. And particularly, I'd, I'd like to thank you both for just reminding us to not, T, I believe you, you mentioned this, to not over-intellectualizing the work to the point where, ex, where, where we're excluding the very communities that we're trying to serve, right? It's counterintuitive to, to this work. And also particularly because for me, relationships are really important and not forgetting that humans are critical to this work. And also, Jeff, really appreciate your, um, you highlighting the importance of sharing stories. I feel like it's such a great way to connect, find some commonalities between us, and also forge new relationships to chart a path forward since this work is truly not done alone. So wishing you both a, a summer, if, if you have one to enjoy, or some vacation, and best of luck with the work that the both of you are engaging in. Oh, Matt, I really appreciate you bringing together the major highlights of today's conversation. Before we close out this episode, I want to invite everyone to reflect on how some of these highlights connect with the work of anti-racist teaching in higher education. While our guests said several meaningful things, I'm going to focus on two points. First, Dr. McNair mentioned that this framework of truth, racial healing, and transformation is meant to bring everyone to the table to engage in the work of breaking down this false hierarchy on human value. And that point is anchored in relationships and connections that we can make with one another for the betterment of everyone. I think that connects with the work that happens in anti-racist teaching. It's a strong tenet of this teaching to focus on love. And we've talked about this in several episodes about how the hard work of anti-racist teaching is the heart work. At the core of anti-racist teaching is seeking to humanize the classroom and learning processes so that everyone can thrive in their full humanity as they seek to pursue a higher education. Relatedly, Dr. Hines talked about how we can transform spaces by transforming opportunities. This is directly related to the work of anti-racist teaching. This idea that we can transform learning opportunities by transforming the learning space. And in particular, transforming the learning space so that all students, but particularly those who have been marginalized within higher education, can witness their legacies of wisdom in the curriculum and in the pedagogical approaches enacted in the classroom. Thank you again, Dr. McNair and Dr. Hines for this wisdom that you've shared with us today. We appreciate you, your work, and your commitment to advance equity in education and in communities. As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart. 